You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello, Mr. Mike. Also back in the booth with us this week is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Thank you very much for having me. No Dennis Hopper impersonation this week? Well, I I feel like I'm going to butcher the Czech language enough already without trying to do some greeting in Czech, so i just keeping it simple. <laughs> Apologies up front for butchering the names and everything. I've already tried to spell out some of these things uh, phonetically, so just be warned. So this week we are discussing Zbigniew Brynich's 1965 film The Fifth Horseman is Fear. The film stars Miroslav Maka. Czech as Dr. Braun. The film is ostensibly set during Nazi occupation of Prague, where Dr. Braun isn't practicing medicine. Instead, he's cataloging the items that Nazis have pilfered from Jews, who we can assume have been sent to their slaughter. This is never spoken aloud, nor are a lot of other things. Instead, the film is rife with a sense of overwhelming dread that manifests in several interesting ways. We'll discuss those as well as other spoilers along the way. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw The Fifth Horseman as Fear, and what did you think? I think maybe about four years ago now, which is five, four years ago, was when I kind of really seriously started to get into Czech cinema. And it was through our mutual friend, who I believe... You've had on the show Michael Brook. He's like Eastern European film historian, suggested I might like it because of the gothic elements and whatnot. So I got hold of a copy, which was very difficult because the Facets DVD, I think, might have even been out of print then or was really um, expensive to import. And ever since then, I've been on a mission to make people watch this film because I just love it. As depressing as it is, I just think it's a masterpiece. How about you, Ben? I'd been on my watch list for years and years and years, but yeah, as, as Kat was saying, you know, these Czech films are just are still so damn hard to find. Um, so it was when we discussed doing Czech Timber again, I was interested in doing this one, and it gave me a good rocket up my butt to finally track it down and see it. So it was uh, fresh this last week watching. Yeah, this was a first-time view for me. This has also been on my to-watch list for a long time, and then... It was planned before Kat wrote her article in Sight and Sound, but that was just another good kick in the pants to say, yeah, I'm really glad that I chose to do this movie because I really didn't know what to expect. And a lot of times I expect like a little bit of comedy in these films for whatever reason. You know, we talked about uh, closely observed trains and just how there's comedy and there's some serious stuff. There's not a whole lot of comedy in this movie. Very serious, but so well done and just absolutely gorgeous. This movie is shot and looks so good. And the soundtrack is phenomenal. The use of sound effects in this, I mean, even from the very beginning, even from those opening credits where it's kind of this like, oh, what would you say, like a freeform jazz kind of thing going on over shots of Prague. And then it starts to get really discordant really fast. I love that aspect of it, though. I think discordant sums up the entire piece, really, which adds to this like really suffocating atmosphere that you get from it, which is brilliant. But the soundtrack's amazing. It just needs to be on Blu-ray. Oh, so it's badly. Too beautiful. I, oh, it is so beautiful. Like I just couldn't even. I, I, I said I, it was it was such a strange experience watching this because I was like. 
it really affected me. And like I've seen a lot of these Czech films have affected me, um, uh, Czech Slovak films have affected me very deeply. And yet this one just had something intangible extra in every single element that just felt like hammer blows to the stake being driven into my heart as I watched it. But the, the cinematography is just exquisite, and especially the way that they shoot like, from a slightly, slightly low angle. So a lot of the crowd shots just become these shoulders and heads with all this empty space above them in the full scope frame. And it's just it's something just just disturbing and chilling, almost like you're on a podium watching the crowd before you and they're expecting something from you. We start off with these shots of Prague, a lot of streetcars. We've got this music going on. And then we get this shot that I wasn't exactly sure what it was, but we will get kind of a close up and a closer and a closer until we get like a full frame of this whole thing. And what at first appears almost like wallpaper because it's all these notices up on the wall, but we don't necessarily know that at first. And then we push in, you know, throughout a series of shots, we will get closer to this. And then finally we see that these, I guess they're like notices and they have the Nazi insignia on there, the Eagle with the swastika and we get a real close up shot where it's basically like a phone number for people to call to uh, pretty much report other people. It's like report suspicious activity pretty much. And that shot comes back over and over again through this movie. And there's so much of reporting on your neighbors, reporting on people. Remember, if you see something, say something. And I was really curious about that phone number because nothing in this movie is a throwaway. I think there are so many significant things to this. So I was trying to figure out what the significance of the phone number is because it's, what is it, 44811. So I was doing like combinations of uh, numbers and dates and stuff, and I couldn't come up with anything. I'd be very curious to know if there was something. The closest I got was that on um, – November 8th, 1944, that 25,000 Hungarian Jews, and this is, talk about weird wording, this was from uh, onthisday.com, 25,000 Hungarian Jews are loaned to Nazis for forced labor. I, I'm like, what was led? We'll assume that maybe it's someone whose first language isn't English and not somebody who's trying to warp the language. But yeah, I'm sure that's that's the kind of terminology that a bit scary but um yeah there, there, there is a lot in this film where it's like oh i think that means something because like the the you keep seeing throughout the all of the, the 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 film is mostly interiors but every time he goes out of the streets there's lots of unusual things happening people lurking in the backgrounds and i, I don't think i've ever seen a film where the metropolis felt so much like the dark woods and that there was something waiting in the dark woods and you needed to get home as quickly as possible. Um, but in the midst of all this, there's a removalist truck that you see twice. It says on the side of the truck, Stehovani Kirschenberger. Did a bit of translating on Google, so I don't know if this is 100% right, but I spent some time living in Vienna, so my German's bad, but somewhat there. Uh, Kirschenberger is something like a church shepherd. Um, and it's German, but Stehovani is Czech and means move or migration. So it's an interesting that they've got the German word and the Czech word connected there, and they have very odd meanings. Like the, the you can sort of move as you can take, but also for to mean migration, which is obviously like a massive 
trigger word to do with what the Nazis are up to. And, um, and yeah, church shepherd is, is yeah, it's, it's, there's, and then one of the neighbors is, uh, Dr. Wiener. Or no, he goes to see Dr. Wiener to get morphine, doesn't he? Because Wiener is someone of Vienna, which in gain Austria being a key part of the axis. Um, yeah, it's really, it, it was a I was just like, oh, quick, no, no, it's no, it's no. What does this mean? Google, Google, Google. <laughs> I was going to say he uses posters again, though, in, I don't know if you guys have seen it, Transport from Paradise. Posters come up a lot in that, as do objects, which the objects in this, at the beginning of this film, when you see the cataloging rooms and you've got the room full of clocks, the room full of books, uses objects in transport from paradise where you've got the the jews uh, possessions in numbered suitcases and he keeps going back to that shot in that with all the numbers on them and posters as well with these sort of political posters so it definitely seems to be a theme in these two films yeah that that remnants idea that the objects never really imbued with an identity that they just are remnants of these people who have as far as we know being erased off the planet and it's like the the softness of human bodies disappears so easily and only leaves behind these hard inorganic materials it must have been such a strange experience after the war to have so many remnants of people left behind without with knowing that they probably didn't exist anymore and that I think that way I would have found that. I like, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a house renter and I've moved in numerous rental houses and, you know, the older the house is, the more it leaves you wondering about what lives lived here and what families grew up here and such. And you look for those remnants. And so I can only imagine that it's still like you're, you're, that's not a choice in post-war Europe. It's you're forced to look at remnants and you're forced to think about where they come from. It's so depressing. One of the reasons why it really deeply affected me today is we're talking about the poster and what it says on the poster, or at least the translation, was um, promptly and accurately reporting information ensures your safety. Yeah. And that is chilling generally. <laughs> in Here in Australia, about every year or so, they pop up all these national security advisor posters on bus and tram stops, and the wording is very very similar and it's of course you know it's about terrorists and all that but that's i as soon as i saw that and heard that it sent a chill down my spine the same chill i get whenever i see those posters because it's just you know i hear I, I won't go into it too much but in australia at the moment our political system is imploding due to nutters and bad people and a lot of this film echoed a lot of what has been happening in Australia in the last couple of years in our treatment of refugees and minorities and little lower classes. And so I think that is another reason why this film really hit home today. It was just like, oh, God, we really are going back there, aren't we? <laughs> Can I just say this idea of being complicit with the Nazis, the Czech, Czech Slovaks under occupation, um, Juri Hertz, who did the cremator, was second unit director on transport from Paradise, so he learned from Brinich. Mm. And going back to those films, you can definitely see bits of The Fifth Hoffman is Fear and bits of Paradise in the cremator, just odd little things. But what Hertz said was that at the time, in the, in the sort of communist period, you had a lot of tech filmmakers who 
talked about the war. I mean, this is also could also be addressing communism, like a lot of the other, but like just oppressive systems. It could be either or. Mm. Same with Hertz. But Hertz sort of said you got this idea in literature and film that came after the war of the Czech hero who resisted the Nazis. But there was another side to that, and that was the, the Czechs who were complicit with the Nazis so that they could, you know, so they would be safe to go back to that to ensure your safety. You know, it might have been uh, some sort of coercion. Um, and Hertz always felt that side of the story wasn't being told. And he kind of tells that in The Cremator. But you see that in The Fifth Horseman is Fear, and you see it in Transport from Paradise as well, where you've got the one guy who's asked to put, which is just horrendous, 2,000 names of people in the Jewish ghetto on the transport list. And he then starts to try and exploit that to get into some girls' pants, basically. But this whole thing of people under these conditions, how they adapted because survival became key. Um, And I agree with Hertz, you do, you know, there is a lot of focus on heroism in Czech films, in a lot of the Czech films that deal with World War II. Um, this isn't one of them. This shows the other side, which is which is brilliant, but it's also really just fucking depressing how low some people can go. There's hope in this film. It doesn't end well, but and it, there is there is some hope in there, and there is some heroism because he, he, oh, I think. It, but it, it's it's obviously the the heroism is in the minor uh, key, whereas the major key is complicity. And, and I think that, um, Dr. Avino, when he says, uh, hate is contagious more so than the plague and spreads by chain reaction speaks to that entirely. And you see that in the, the apartment block of the, of the, the, the most of the film takes place that this kind of the, their own fear stirs up hatred of each other that starts them turning on each other. I think the fact that because it is about the complicit elements, so it makes the heroin the heroism at the end so powerful. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was just like tears in my eyes, just like whoa. So I think yeah, it is about hope and it is about heroism as much as it is about the darker aspects of of culture and humanity. One of the earliest scenes that we get is what Dr. Braun is doing, and he goes into this place where they're cataloging, it seems like, all of these objects. You know, Kat, you mentioned the objects. And I'd read in one description of the film that the place where this is happening, where they're keeping all of these things, that that was a synagogue. I'm not sure if I believe that or not. There's there's a paltry amount of stuff written about this film. A lot of it is written in Czech, so sometimes the translation might not be there, but uh, I'm not exactly sure where this place is, but it is filled to the rafters with objects. And we get these things, like the shot, there's a shot of uh, Dr. Braun, our main character, going through and just a wall full of clocks and just seeing all of these clocks there. Or we have a hallway filled with musical instruments. And then, of course, as the movie goes on, we see back at Dr. Braun's apartment, a clock, a violin, we know that his objects will probably join the collection there soon. He gets a call at one point when he's back at his apartment, and uh, they say, oh yeah, you're going to go to this place and pick up these objects, and he recognizes the apartment. I was surprised that it wasn't his own apartment, but it's another apartment, and his line after that is, we're liquidating ourselves. You know, It is this whole idea of, yes, there is complicity, and we are 
taking these objects and putting them in storage, doing whatever. Eventually, they'll probably be pilfered by the Nazis. But for now, we're cataloging all of these things. And like you said, Kat, this does remind me a lot of those suitcases in uh, Transport from Paradise. And just that that maze of suitcases, it seems like such a crazy set where we have all those suitcases. And in this, it's very much the same as far as just aisleways that are filled with objects that have already been taken and now cataloged. And that shot, the opening credits shot, when we finally stop and see the credits, it is this whole room filled with pianos. And pianos are going to be majorly important to this movie because we're going to constantly hear pianos and practicing and a lot of discordant pianos. And we just stop in this room uh, with Braun coming through it, and that's where we do our credit sequence and just see all of these pianos. And that's going to be, we're going to return to that space quite a few times, but the majority of this uh, film takes place at his apartment building where we get this whole cross section. You know, it's no coincidence, right? We always have that whole idea of like the cross section of society lives in one apartment building. And that's what we do here as well. And we can even get to the idea of going up the stairs to the more important people, the, the less important people living on the lower floors. And we have this amazing, I can't say it's necessarily a spiral, but it's more of an oval staircase going up that gets used just brilliantly with the cinematography throughout this movie. Yeah, it's very much reminded me of um, uh, Bentham's Panopticon. For those who don't know, Panopticon being like the ideal prison where no matter where you are, you are observed. And so you eventually take on the oppressor's eye. So you start to observe yourself as the oppressor observes you and start to control your behaviors and become a model prisoner or citizen. And the, the way the apartment is shot is just a 100% panopticon of everybody. You can't move an inch without somebody hearing it or seeing it or coming out of their door. And it just puts so much tension into the film. You've got that big spiral staircase. So I, 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 my degrees in sociology, so panopticon just yeah. gave me flashbacks then. <laughs> All over it. <laughs> and over it, probably. <laughs> Yeah, it is because you've got that staircase as well where people can look down um, and you see that one shot later on where people are just kind of looking down over the stairwells. It's like you can't come into the building or leave the building without people observing and reporting and seeing what you're doing. And it's just it's amazing the, the construction of it and how a lot of the action comes in this hallway of people going up and going down where they're being watched. When you first meet all the, the inhabitants of the block, you've got this, you know, you don't know who to trust. There's there's people sort of staring and looking. Some of them are sinister. Some of them are hiding secrets themselves. And it's just it's just amazing, really. I was very surprised that Dr. Braun isn't the only main character, that we actually have two other characters that play major roles in this. And we've got a young boy and then we've got a middle-aged man so i think we're kind of seeing also like the strata of young middle-aged older because dr braun is definitely an older guy he's got the gray in his beard and everything and the kid you know we think oh yeah the kid okay this is going to be great he's going to go on adventures and everything and even when he goes outside 
and there's this kind of jokey music and it becomes almost like a silent comedy as we see this guy stumbling around and then when we realize in horror no this isn't a keystone cops type comedy this guy has been shot and now he needs help and that becomes like the central premise to the film is that there's this resistance person who is injured and now he is taken by another person to Dr. Braun, Dr. Braun, who has been forbidden from practicing medicine, but now they want him to help and fix this guy. And that really jettisons us onto the majority of the film, which is almost this like Orpheus type journey of Dr. Braun going and looking for morphine for uh, this patient that he has and the journey that he goes on through all of these different obstacles, let's say where he, uh, has to go through and try to find the morphine for this. And of course, as I'm watching this, uh, Kat, you mentioned the cremator. So I'm thinking of that doctor character in the cremator who is a morphine addict. And there are several times where it seems like Dr. Braun is being mistaken for a morphine addict because he's constantly looking for morphine. So, um, but yet he has good intentions, whereas other people might not have good intentions for that. You do get that mm. sense as well that it's accepted that he's a morphine addict. And the people in the club, it's kind of this sort of decadent sort of atmosphere where people have just given up and just taken to drugs and alcohol to to kind of get them through this. And so he's, he's accepted as that, which is yet another depressing layer to it. It's not people don't even assume that he wants to help someone. The automatic assumption is he's a drug addict, as most or a lot of the people that he encounters seem to have fallen into vice and everyone's sort of given up. Mm, yeah, and the, when he does finally find a doctor who can give him morphine, they have a very strange conversation. The doctor says to him something about when they're they're saving twenty plus suicides a day. Like absurd that he wants morphine to help somebody. That seemed to be the implication of what he was saying. Yeah, and that was just like, oh, you know, I'm gonna go cry now. Just like even the doctor is just like, why do you want to help somebody when everyone's trying to kill themselves? You're an idiot. <laughs> it really is. It's like everyone's just kind of just giving up. It's yeah. that's the overall like they're either reporting on others to to survive, but then conversely, they've all kind of just given up as well. It's a weird dichotomy in there that you know there's there's no hope, but yet people are still desperate to hang on to things. I wanted to mention actually the guy who so the guy who helps the um the guy who's been shot. Is I'm going to mess his name up now. Ilya Pratcher is the guy who's the Nazi uh, guy in the cremator, mm-hmm. and he also plays a German officer in Transport from Paradise. In a lot of turns up in a lot of Czech film, um, but it's weird to see him in the opposite uh, on the opposite side this time because he's I don't know what it is about his face. But he just makes a good Nazi, do you know? What I mean? <laughs> no disrespect to the to the actor, but he just has that look. He's very good at sinister, so it's yeah. it, it's interesting to see him in a different role here. I think it's the combination of there's a certain he's got that hard German skull with a very dominant brow and features, but he's also quite pudgy as well in the face. So it's like the combination of the hardness of the Nazis with all those the, the decadence of the Nazis. Maybe that's why he fits it quite well because in, in this he's definitely he fits into the more working class 
kind of archetyped in this, or at least that's what it appears from the limited information we're given. Yeah, his look makes him very difficult to trust. So when he is asking Dr. Braun for help, it's like, are you asking for this for real, or are you trying to trap him? And that's kind of the thing that we get throughout this movie is, are you really trying to help? Are you really doing this, or is this just a plot in order to get dirt on somebody in order to call 44811 and inform on your neighbor? Which is incredible. I think it uses that not not necessarily deliberately because the cremator came after but it it uses what we think we know about this actor and that becomes yet another part of this whole it's the whole film has you question literally everybody apart from dr brawl the film that reminded me of most of the, that check new wave it shares an editor with um uko or the ear Reminded me a lot of the year, which that is a, a, a film that takes place half inside or two thirds inside of a husband and wife's house overnight while they drunkenly argue and search for um, tap, you know, bugging devices in their house, having returned from uh, the local, local communist party party. And uh, so the film is the other third is flashbacks to the party, and it's that same kind of thing where it's like these conversations which can be read either way as a person trying to communicate to you to help you or to communicate to you to trap you and that kind of enclosed paranoia as well of the way that the the house is used in that reminded me a lot of this it's definitely like the ear it's definitely there's like a little subset of these these films that come out of the new wave where Czechoslovak cinema didn't really have this tradition of horror film. Um, there's no tradition of horror film, although some earlier in the 30s they had other horrors that were made there by international horrors. There's no like thing, but what you do get post-war is what Hertz described as strack, this fear, and so people were making horrific films like The Year like last August at the Hotel Ozone, things that are like looking at really dark elements of humanity, absurdity, putting in the grotesque, things like suspicion, oppression. And so they become like horror films, but they're not because they're not in our sense of horror films. But it's, 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 it's quite interesting, really, because I think that makes the films so different to anything we see in the West. But we can still relate to them because they're exploring some of the same fears that we find in the horror genre. So we can mm. still relate to them, even if we don't understand all the context or the significance of a date or a number or whatever. They still relate um internationally without that because they they kind of buy into this the things we can all relate to like you know fear paranoia oppressive things so it's a part of czech cinema that i love i love these kind of very dark very oppressive films um the year is slightly more absurd though Mm, i think this is possibly one of the darkest yeah, well, I, it's, it's it's interesting. I've been thinking about what you were just saying a lot lately because I just saw Gaspar Noé's Climax, and I 100% will describe that as a horror film. But again, it's that kind of thing where it's like it's not a horror film by most people's standards, but well, it, this film it horrified me, and it definitely is about that 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 breakdown in reality and the paranoia and the fear and how your fellow man can become the greatest monster of all. And I think a lot of these. Czech films fed into 
you know, would, would, have, would have American New Wave of horror in the 70s, the kind of last house on the left and that kind of very realist, uh, gritty, nihilistic horror. Well, all those horrors about losing control in some way, aren't they? And I think we can mm. all respond to that. We all fear losing control. And the fifth horseman is fear is all about losing control. Like Dr. Braun can't even be a doctor anymore because, you know, the Nazis have come in and said he's not allowed to to practice medicine and you know you're going to go here and catalog these things until we're done with you and then you'll be one of these people as well and i think you know we can all like last house on the left is all about losing control in the revenge thing i think we all respond to that in some way you know the czech experience is a very unique one but it's something that we you know even if you haven't been through that you can still understand it's still frightening losing control is probably one of the most frightening things i think mm, absolutely and i think also um there were bits in this we mentioned briefly that the sound work is and this is incredible and i really must repeat again the sound in this film is incredible and there were bits that reminded me there was there's one bit where they use whispering which is so alike uh suspiria the way they use whispering yes. in Suspiria that I was I was like that part of me that gears up for the ding ling 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 of which to start kicking in was ready to go <laughs> <laughs> and I was like wow that's that's yeah that's that's the game that that horror kind of feeling and and a bit of bit of a feeling of uh Buzz gothics as well and how it's shot and how it sounds it definitely uses gothic especially expressionism and there's some of the scenes uh especially in the stairwells and stuff that are reminiscent of sort of German expressionism and gothic uh the scene in the club is is very gothic it's just and I love gothic obviously you know so (laughs) (laughs) see when we did case for rookie hangman we found a lot of gothic in that even though that was the same cinematographer and the same editor yeah, it's definitely film, yeah. A, yeah, very dark, lots of light and show, sort of brings it into the noir a bit as well. It's it's amazing. Yeah, there's a shot right at the beginning of the film when we kind of see our first observer where it's somebody at the end of a stairwell. It reminds me of like the exorcist stairs where you're looking down this incredible stairwell and then there's a person at the very end. Just this little tiny person, but you know that they're there to observe you. And that shot to me really, also aside the exorcist, really reminds me of German Expressionism because it seems like that set could have almost been painted Mm, absolutely, and the the the, the cinematographer Jan Kallas um, also uh, shot uh, Ikari XB1, um, uh, which is was apparently a huge influence on 2001, if I remember correctly. But if you go back to if you go back to Ikari XB1, you can see the 2001 influence, but it is shot like a gothic space opera in this beautiful black and white. Oh, it's absolutely it's one of the best cinematographers. But there, as I mentioned earlier, it also shares an editor um, with Case Lurkey Hangman, um, Miroslav Hajak. And I looked up this guy's filmography and I was like, oh, so he just he just did everything. <laughs> uh, he, he did Daisies. He had edited, edited Daisies, Marketa Lazarova, uh, The Fireman's Ball, Loves of a Blonde, The Year, Case for a Rookie Hangman, Fruit of Paradise, A Report on the Party and the Guest, Diamonds of the Night, Pearls of the Deep, Happy End, Lemonade Joe, Black Peter. And that's just like half of them. I was like, oh, he's, okay, cool. Love this guy then. 
don't get uh, I'm, I'm probably talking out of my ass now but wasn't he involved with Vera Hitilova um, yeah. and he was asked approached by Hertz to do the cremator and because Hertz was kind of they were in the Prague school the family kind of clique and Hertz was a bit of an outsider um, he was like no um, I don't I don't want to do that actually no um, so they they turn her star, but I think he came back and did the game, probably talking out my ass. Morgiana, did he do Morgiana? I don't think he did Morgiana. I think there was one Hertz. He in did there. come back and work for Hertz at some point. I'm pretty sure, but at the time, Hertz was kind of like the outsider. He wasn't in the in the art clique. <laughs> he was like, mm. yeah. So he he turned down the cremator, but he was doing everything else. So you know, let's oh, leave some space for someone. <laughs> yeah, our main character. Uh, Kat, you mentioned Case for a Rookie Hangman, and uh, the actor that plays Dr. Braun was also in that. He worked uh, several times with this director, um, with uh, Transit Carlsbad. Uh, this guy was also in Voyage to the End of the Universe, which is another favorite of mine. But apparently, he had a very interesting uh, working method. So again, going back to um, an article that I read on 25fps.cz, he wanted everything to be shot. And this is Miroslav uh, Machacek that I'm talking about, Dr. Braun. He wanted everything to be shot in one take. He didn't want to do multiple takes. He wanted to give his all in one performance. And now he allowed multiple takes, especially at the beginning of the process. But as they went along, apparently he just did everything in one take, which is really remarkable. And there's one scene that they call out, especially which there's a three minute long monologue that takes place all in a single shot. And he uh, did that whole thing. One take all the technical challenges that were involved with that. They managed to get through them. And so he was very much of the, uh, with the Stanislavski method. Right. And he really wanted to give it his all. And that's one of the reasons again, why this movie stands out is because of that performance of Dr. Braun is just a standout very awesome wells actually complete aside but i was reading about awesome wells in compulsion with his 18 minute monologue how he how that was kind of just shot in one continuous long thing and he just you know very awesome wells in that regard his whole look with the hat the glasses the beard i mean it's just remarkable and that he's almost always carrying an umbrella with him and apparently he had like things in his pockets that were very important to him as a character so he would you know reach in his pockets and feel like he had twine and a pocket knife and all this stuff so he was very into this character and so i think that that comes through especially as we go along and especially at the end of the film this, his uh, monologue at the end of the movie is amazing, but you know we'll get there. But Kat, you mentioned the bar sequence and how expressionistic that was. I mean, that sequence just gets wilder and wilder as we see it, especially as we pull back, and it just feels like this whole big space, and there's those that those bars that are there, and it's like, what are those necessarily doing? And we have this woman who's introduced to the scene who, what is she, looking for her daughter or something? She's just... She comes in and she's this kind of agent of chaos yeah. inside of this room where everybody seems to be like, oh, let's forget about the rest of the world and have a good time. But we just see how insane that idea is by this quote unquote crazy woman that comes in. And she is the one that introduces us into the insane asylum where, again, 
everything that Dr. Braun says to the people at this asylum, you think he's going to get locked up. But he's like, you know, it, it feels like one of those, are people more insane on the inside than the outside? Especially one of the first things that we see in this insane asylum is there's a man who's who's crying out and one of the nurses says, no one's listening, no one's assembling. And it's like, oh yeah. So he's trying to gather the troops, basically, and nobody cares. The juxtaposition of those two scenes, one after the other, though, is incredible because you have the theme of madness in both of them. What I especially love about the the bar scene, the nightclub scene, is you've got this woman just acting completely more and more deranged and accusing people and kind of going round, and everyone else kind of stops dead still, like they can't see her. And then you end up in this, this insane asylum where people are walking into walls and shouting stuff out and nobody's listening. And, you know, it's just so incredible. And the way they're shot as well as two sort of opposites. You've got the nightclubs very much, very stylized and very expressionistic. And then you've got this stripped down insane asylum with mm. these people in it who are just, you know, nobody's listening. You just, everyone just thinks he's mad because he's at Dr. Braun because he's had a couple of drinks. And you're just like heart in mouth at that point, <laughs> especially mm. when they take him off into that room. You just think he's done it now. You know, he survived the club and the crazy woman, but he's done it now. You know, he's never going to get out. It's just, yeah. Yeah, and the way that it it shifts, as you said, like it's it's so stripped back, the insane asylum, and it's that white, that clinical clinical white. And after so much sort of grim, gothic oppressiveness, you'd think that something more open and white and clean would feel better, but it's almost like, oh no, it's like you're in this gothic grim world, but the place where everybody's going to end up is even worse. And it was at the point in the in the Insane Asylum that I I started to get, again, like there's a lot of, a lot of films that I've been getting weird echoes with. I don't know what's going on with me today. Um, 12 Monkeys started to come into my mind a lot here with the that way the same mm. asylum is shot and depicted in that. But it's almost like I, 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 I would you can make a fair argument this had, was an influence on Gilliam because there's a lot of similarities, um, uh, both in themes and tones and execution and lots of things. But in particular, I think this is really interesting because essentially Gilliam kind of flips it. So whereas this one is like you get this sense that the people of the party are going to end or, you know, people in society are going to end up at the asylum because that's the progression of movement we've got. But Gilliam, we flips it where in the asylum are going to end up at the party and they're going to get out. So it's like the back then people were more afraid of the institution and then now we're more afraid of the outside world or something like that. It's just a, it, it's an interesting sort of dichotomy and comparison between the two. No, talking to Gilliam, Brazil as well. I mean, Brazil's oh, all total, all about oppressive systems and people reporting mm. each other and suspicion. I know Gilliam was really influenced by Borovchek, so it's not too much of a stretch to think he was also watching Brinich as well. There's a lot of doctors in this movie because he's looking for a Dr. Rudzitska. He's a doctor. And then there's also Dr. Wiener that lives in the apartment building as well. Sesmir uh, Randa is who plays him. And he's got, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with this character, like the, the stuff with his wife and his wife always going shopping and he's got this mistress and all these things happening. But the thing that fascinated me the most is that Bizarro 
disembodied head that he has, this African statue statue of this African woman. It's nothing degenerate. It's nothing degenerate. <laughs> nothing degenerate. I was really glad he pointed that out. <laughs> Points that out to this character, uh, Fanta, this uh, little guy with these thick glasses who's always looking at people. Yeah, and Fanta's the informer. Yeah, that weird thing where he slaps this African woman's face. It's just like, what the hell is this? Everything to do with him was bizarre, though. That when he takes bath, I thought he was gonna like it was gonna be some sort of weird suicide scene. Like, everything to do seems to be loaded with some strange meaning that um, you don't really know what he's doing or what. You know, there's a lot going on in him. <laughs> it's like he's uh, kind of lost the will to live, surrounded by crazy wives and shopping. The wife with the shopping is amazing. Oh, just man, all I, this I, shit going on. She's just obsessed with buying stuff. Have Kat, have you seen um, his other film, The Females? No, I haven't. Mm, no. I was really hoping you would because that sounds fascinating and like a, a hell of a lot. <laughs> but it, apparently that one is quite um, heavily influenced by feminist ideas and theories at the time. And I'm really curious about what he does with that because I don't think that this is a, I don't think it's, I don't think applying a gendered lens to this film is particularly helpful um, because we have moved so far forward in the roles that the different genders are able to play in society. But watching this, it's like the, the women are kind of given the short stick that they're, they, they, they really are just reduced to the kind of the, you know, the mother, the, the, the wife, the, the cheating wife, the aggressive wife, the crazy old lady, the maid, and they're all kind of shrill and badgering the men of like, why did you get involved? Why are you doing this? Or they're hiding the children. And it's, mm. it's, if you do look through it at a gendered lens, it can appear to be problematic, but I don't think that's the point. And I don't think that he's doing. I just wish that I had seen, the females to see a bit more of him addressing women directly, because obviously this film is very much the, because in this world where, you know, as we said that you can't go out of the stairwell without somebody peeking out. So if you're, you know, the regulations say you can't be out after a certain hour. So the men kind of have a little bit more freedom to move because they can be like, Oh, well, I have to run this errand for work or this. Whereas the women are, are just so constrained down to the barest, like, bones of their kind of roles. Uh, it's, I, I think... it's definitely something in there. I think the problem with Brinich is so few of his films are available for English speakers. He did one later on. I think it might have even been 1968, I Justice, which mm. I've seen with no subs. Um, and it's a film that needs to be seen subtitled. It's basically about a doctor, again, who is is called on uh, to go somewhere. This is after Hitler's suicide, and he's taken to this bunker, and basically he's there to treat Hitler, who's not dead. Um, so it's definitely like a theme in his work, but making sense of that with no subtitles is impossible. It's not even had fan subs. Uh, some of his early thrillers, like The Skid, uh, you can get with subs, but so few of them are available and you read about them and you just think, God, this sounds amazing. I really need to see this film. And then you can't, see it anywhere uh, or you can find it on some Czech streaming site but with no subtitles and it's it's just you know of all the new wave well Brinich I think was slightly older but of all the, the filmmakers that are in that new wave thing you know he's definitely one 
that is being ignored compared to, you know, the bigger names, I guess, because he wasn't in the young, trendy, famu thing. He's already mm. established. But so much of his work looks really interesting. Yeah, and it's it is the, the, because it is so stripped back, as we said, and there is so little details given, that's where you kind of do have to go auteur theory and have to go to mm. the other films to get the bigger perspective on what his ideas and themes are. And it's, yeah, from this one film, it's like there's still – there's still enough here to write a book on without the contextualizing material and knowledge. It's still a hell of an experience, but it does, yeah, as you said, it just leaves you wishing for more. And and this film, The Females, he apparently was he went ended up making quite a few films for German investors in the seventies. And so the females is very much related to like the the schoolgirl report films and the Germans' obsession with schoolgirl pornography in the seventies. Uh, and I was like, all yeah. that stuff. Just I was like, oh man, I want to see the guy who made *Horseman's <laughs> Year* doing his take on German schoolgirl report films. Yeah, he did uh, three films in 1970 for Germany: uh, *Oh Happy Day*, *Angels with Burnt Wings*, and then *The Females*, which is also known as *Carnivorous Females*. And yeah, they all have they all have a great look to them. But yeah, I would consider them like art house exploitation. So th- they're pretty fascinating. Which is literally the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, Ben, your a... your observation about the women in it, so I was just sat there thinking now in uh, Czechoslovakia, even in the communist period, this feminism uh when, you know, Czech women had a lot of agency and a lot of power um, even in the arts, you know, a lot of women involved in script writing, in directing, you know, it was very progressive in that sense. And so you do yeah. tend to see a lot of strong women in Czech film, which I think is what I love about it so much. But the cremator is another one. The women in that are hardly even given lines. So mm. I'm wondering the significance to that. Because, you know, in the cremator, you've got the daughter and the wife, and they're almost like objects to cop for a kingle, and they, they rarely speak. So, yeah, I'm wondering the significance to that now. There definitely is, and but again, it's, it's hard to pin down what it is because it is is it referring to how w- women um, existed underneath the Reich, or is it how women existed under communism? Because, like as we said, you know that this, it was very easy for uh, Czech and Slovak filmmakers, or easier for Czech and Slovak filmmakers, to make films commenting on the Communist Party. And set them in the Second World War because the Nazis were bad and the communists were pretty okay with you depicting the Nazis as being bad. And so you could get away a lot by going, oh, no, it's about Nazis. And this film, actually, I think more than anyone that I've seen is like the most borderline, absolutely not about the Nazis (laughs) Um, because the – the the only real like a lot of the the actions and the themes and the politics absolutely but the only element that points directly to nazism is on those posted walls and it is the third reich eagle and it is plastered across the whole wall but even so even though they are numerous they're still very small and those posters exist in this kind of cutaway where even though they're absolutely essential to the film, they almost could have been added in at the last minute to cover their asses because the, the, the people, the, you know, the, the, the nameless people who come in to find, um, the injured person have no regalia. They, you know, with their, they're all speaking Czech. It's like there's nothing 
to really, really pin them down as German, as far as I know, reading a fan sub version. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's really, this film is just like, oh yeah, it's a, it's about the Holocaust, it's about Nazis, but that is a damn big swipe at communism as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, those guys, they come in about midway through the film. We get the first appearance of this raid at their apartment building, and then we'll get them again right towards the end of the film. And yeah, the lack of insignias, the way that they lurk around the corners, um, they're really super spooky. And I totally agree that these are just basically secret police of any stripe. You know, it doesn't matter what era that they are, but you could say they're SS guys, but yeah, that certainly doesn't seem like it. Yeah, and their lead member has a is a very uh, uh, Czech Klaus Kinski. And the way that they have Dr. Braun play the violin for them while he's got the uh, patient underneath the bed. I mean, just there are certain times where they really just ratchet up the suspense in this movie, which most of the time this movie is just rife with dread. You know, you just feel the dread of it. But during that sequence, you're just like, wow, I really hope he doesn't get caught. Almost towards the end, when he gives his whole speech, like, yes, I did this, it's almost satisfying for him to... It is satisfying for him to give this whole speech, but it's not satisfying that he gets shot for his trouble. The other doctor in the apartment block, is it he the one who is asked by the boy about what a heroic death is, or is it the working class guy? I think it might be the work. Of the, the boy asks somebody in the apartment what a good death is. Something I along those lines. I think it's the doctor. It's the decadent. Doctor, it might have been the it? doctor. Yeah, and and the, he says that like a, a heroic death is when you die unnecessarily, and when and a bad death is when you die necessarily or something like that. Something there's a bit of a wordplay to it. And I think that that, that, that again is one of the key th- points of the film is that it is, a, you do feel satisfied by that ending. And even though he does, he bites down on the cyanide and checks out, it's, uh, uh, excuse the pun. Uh, the, uh, it's still satisfying because you know that it was a necessary death. It's like, that was a sacrifice that felt like it could change things. Can we talk, too, about the idea of all the people from the apartment building having to go past the dead body and back up to their apartments as the police watch them and watch their reactions? That is chilling. You've got that radio that kind of comes on in the background as well that's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, the, just the whole thing and this guy kind of finding it amusing and just, oh, it's just that ending. It's like punch in the face. It's like amazing, but it's also like, oh, mm. and it, and it, 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 it kind of it, again comes back to that panopticon thing where it's like it's almost like, you know, the panopticon forces you to take on the eye of your observer. And in here, they're kind of forcing the other people in the apartment to take on his death. And it's almost like they're if if, if they if the Nazis or the, the bad guys could chip away a bit of their soul as they're walking past this corpse, that's what they're doing. They're just chipping away a bit of their soul and sort, shortening the lives of everybody there. Joyful. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> no one's ever going to want to watch this now if they have It's so amazing, though. It is really amazing. We should just literally just say it's so amazing five times in a row over and over again <laughs> for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> 
the horror of is what like you were saying that apathy it's like the that you can sense that or most of these characters even though there is that apathy the ones who do get involved have empathy and there is uh, totalitarian societies are so toxic for people who have empathy because totalitarian societies are about denying empathy and saying no that person is an object no that person is a number and you just you feel the empathy becomes a kind of prison in itself and a kind of torture for these characters so it's like eventually it's dying in sacrifice for another human being regaining his doctorhood it it is a way for him to restore his empathy and make it a you know a blossoming tree instead of a dying gnarled shrub he's tortured all the way through in what he feels he must do and what he should do is, is, you know, going back to the totalitarian idea. And he's having to break the, the law or break the regime to become his true self. And so his act at the end is him kind of saying, I will be me. I am going to be an individual. And he gets his freedom through that. So even though it's kind of sad that he's forced to that, it feels very uplifting, which is what I think is so wonderful. But it's just so powerful. You know, he's, he refuses to allow them to take that empathy and sort of regains his humanity in death. It's just, it is really, I keep saying it's incredible, but it is incredible. And some of the, the saddest scenes for me in the film were the scenes where he was just sitting in his apartment and as he's just sitting on the beds framed in the centre and his back's to the camera and the, the, his, his, his room looks like a prison cell. You know, it's very sparsely populated and it just looks like a single square space and nothing else. And you, you get no sense of homeliness in this place. It feels like every day he's just returning to his prison cell. And the only open part of this prison is he has this huge long window and he just sits there staring out of it he's on the tops you can see the tops of the buildings just through the window and so it's like he can see everything he knows what's going on and yet he can't do anything he's still just sitting there staring with this pane of glass between him and what's going on and just ugh, uh, you know it's a feeling i think we're going to get more and more as we sit here in front of our computers watching What's going on? <laughs> yeah, and the one thing that he can't see out of one of his windows, he's got this little tiny window, and he looks out, and it's just a smokestack. And it's just like you can't get more uh, symbolic of the camps, you know, the the gas chambers and that. Yeah, and but it's also interesting that the the other part that we, we spend primarily spend time in the the. The, the decadent doctor who has his all the drugs and the, the very strange statues, and uh, you spend time in um, our main characters as a part of it. But also, the, the we haven't really talked about the I, I can't remember what her name was, but the crazy old lady upstairs with the oh, dog. she's brilliant. Uh, oh, she's amazing. She they she say at one point that she used to be a music teacher, and it cuts to her apartment, and it's teeming with stuff it's not it's not hoarding it's just teeming and she talks to this old painting on the wall that i assume was her father or grandfather and saying this is not your europe anymore you wouldn't want to see this and she has the piano in the center of the room and it, it, talking about the objects at the beginning again it's like you, yeah there's that that sense that brown's objects are going to appear end up there but i got more of the sense from the old woman that she was protecting these objects there wasn't a sense that 
she was going to lose these objects. It wasn't a sense she was going to lose anything. She was going to hold on to the last minute and she was going to protect all of this personal and European history in her apartment against all odds. I think that's that the music thing and the pianos and the significance of music in it. I took that as more of a tight communism and the fact that at the time when they were making these films, there was a lot of, and there would be even more interference to come. But this idea of interfering with artistic expression, because mm. things like instrument and that whole thing, you know, Dr. Braun's got his violin, but that whole, when they're questioning him, you know, are you a musician? It just seems like, you know, it's the most abhorrent thing you could be, you know, how dare you express your yourself and i don't know i just took that as a little clue to say that brinich was probably talking about communism as much as he was the nazis yeah because the nazis you know they, they were all about their art and culture and using it to crush people with all right we're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors let me ask you a question are you getting enough i bet you'd love more right well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from The Projection Booth. and I want to tell you about a humble guy you might have heard of before. It's my podcast partner. His name's Mike White. He's got a new book out. It's called Cinema Detours. And I just want to tell you that the guy is so humble that he won't even talk about it on the show. He won't even ask you to go to our website, projection-booth.com, or go over to Amazon.com and pick up either the paper version or, you know, the ones and zeros, the digital for your Kindle. He won't ask you to do that. That's how humble he is. But I think you need to do it. You want to know why? Because it's a great read, and especially with the movies that you've seen before, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend and having a good laugh. And as for the movies that you haven't seen, well, i got to throw a beat down on Mr. White because he's now expanded my list probably another hundred films that I need to see. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it at Amazon.com, either in paper form or for your Kindle. And, of course, you can always get more information about this book and the Projection Booth podcast at projection-booth.com. It's Cinema Detours. You know, the girl from that... The, yes, the yes, I know the show exactly. on that... God, I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The the hair was it, but it was different, and she has the the, the, the lips. She has the lips with the. Okay, yeah, wait. The, she, no, she was just okay. You've seen her in a million movies. You know, but the, who but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person. Movies, 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 
always suck as bad as this, but listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. All right, we are back, and we were talking about The Fifth Horseman is Fear. Kat, in your article, you mentioned that this film reminds you of The Tenant and Third Part of the Night, and I think you even dropped uh, The Cremator in there, which is you know a favorite of yours as well as a favorite of mine. Yeah, I was seeing a lot of the tenant and just that whole idea of you know the the dread and the being watched. I mean, uh, Polanski is constantly being observed in that film and being judged and everything. And I that uh, whole idea of the horror of other people. I mean, hell is other people, right? And this is definitely a film that plays with that as well. It's definitely, as I said earlier, it goes into that Eastern European tradition of not doing traditional straight up classic horror as we know it but this more and you see it in kafka you see it in dostoyevsky it's definitely a very eastern european thing of of taking on this idea of paranoia and suspicion and impression and you know just because of the way in which they were living under a lot of oppression and the idea of identity being taken from someone that's a key thing in the tenant he thinks he's being made into someone else this idea that you lose control and you lose control of your individual self uh, and obviously Polanski was making films for the west but he was definitely making them in that tradition and third part of the night again Zhuaski is like a very key theme in that where you've got a guy who again is, is in is in the war he meets this woman that he falls in love with but he's inadvertently contributed to her husband's death you've got people who inform in that you've got uh there's one seat well, a few scenes in it where people are going to feed lice uh in this institution very very absurd it's a lot more absurd than uh the fifth horseman is fear but definitely that same feeling and i think uh third part of the night was based on jurassic's family's experiences during world war ii yeah, it's definitely a link, and these are the, the, the closest they get. The, you know, the way Western horror viewers will probably identify, oh, it's like The Tenant, you know? So everyone knows The Tenant, or people who are into that sort of film knows The Tenant, so then it gives you that point of reference. Because that's another one. Is it horror? Is it psychological thriller? You know, what is it? It's, it's just very strange. Third Part of the Night also plays with horror conventions, but it isn't strictly horror. You mentioned that there was a DVD release from Facets forever ago, and this is not on Blu-ray. And apparently, the DVD release from Facets isn't the entire film. I was doing some research and found that there is a whole sequence that is missing from that release. And that I don't know if it was shown in toto on TCM, but a pan and scan version of it. But regardless, I mean, this movie needs to be put out in a proper blu-ray you know region free the whole world needs to enjoy this but yeah apparently i was reading a review on uh dvd savant and uh, there was a uh, writer who wrote in and then it was confirmed by the guy who runs that site that there's a sequence let's see i'll, I'll read it out to you i read several reviews on amazon that claimed that the print used for the dvd cut out almost the entire brothel scene which brothel includes scene. extensive <laughs> Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> so another another aspect of women in this which involves extensive 
nudity. This is an exceptionally nightmarish sequence lasting at least six or seven minutes with the doctor searching for the morphine coming upon the girl's shower room where many are constantly showering since they have to constantly service eager SS troops who hang out carousing on the first floor and in various rooms. He then makes the rounds of the rooms, running into strange couples, looking for his contact who I believe is his sister, if I remember correctly. This scene was unexpurgated on TCM. Anyway, you made no mention of it in your DVD review and that there was missing footage, seeing that you may not know if it's the only version that you've seen. So, And then, yeah, the uh, guy who runs the site came back and said that it is indeed missing. So I tried. I, you know, I don't like to go on hearsay, so I tried my best trying to locate different versions of this, even going out to... Russian torrent sites and all of these kind of things, which is always dangerous, but I was unable to find that version of it. So I'm going to take it on good faith that that is something that exists. And again, that just means that there needs to be a better release of this movie, a completed version of it. Apparently, um, the the females we were talking about earlier was shorn of fifteen minutes before it was released, and there's a was a German company a couple of years ago, um, Bilderstrong, I think, a distributor who was trying to find it and release it full and uncut, and was just having no luck. So that that's two feel, and that was again cut because the the women are females had been given um an x rating so it's it's that would back up that there is something also a bit licentious missing from this one but it also uh, you, as you described that i was like um <coughs> apocalypse now redux anyone that sounds so much like the the one of the cut scenes from apocalypse now where they refined the playboy bunnies up the river and they wander through the camp and the tents and the bunnies of being used to the trade for oil, um, gasoline, fuel, whatever, which is that's that's really interesting that they're so similar. And again, I, I I'm, I'm I know I seem to be in the minority, but I much prefer the Apocalypse Now Redux because I feel like that it, it balances out and it gives um, more of uh, the, the 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 experience and the the role that women played in the Vietnam War, which I, I find makes it a more full and balanced film. So sign me up for the longer version of this because it certainly it sounds like it might answer a few of our questions from earlier. I'm just sat here sobbing, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good brothel scene. I, I just, you, know, you know, we've been robbed. We've we've been robbed. I have no idea about this. And the, I have written about the film. Um, obviously, that wasn't the when I wrote about Sight and Sound, I was just talking about why it needs to be on. I have literally like 700 words, really challenging to do in a tiny little space. So, yeah, I didn't really look into... I just knew about facets, so I just kind of took it on surface value. So, well done, Mike. Now I'm on another mission. Let us know if you have any luck. (laughs) Obviously, if you find that version, it's not going to have subtitles for that, but we can hope that eventually it will. Yeah, there were a lot of films, even like older Chlipsky films, that when I was out on an older Chlipsky kick, you know, you guys were on the Happy End episode, and he did another film called uh, Adele Hasn't Had Her Supper Yet, and that had major sections that were cut for whatever the end release was. I had found several different versions of that and finally put them all together and got subtitles for everything. So there's a fan subversion of that out there courtesy of me and some very patient Czech people who helped me with some of those subtitles. So 
Kat, you mentioned uh, transport from paradise, and some people consider this the Fifth Horseman is feared to be the middle part in uh, Brinich's Nazi trilogy, as it were, with uh, transport from paradise as the first part, Fifth Horseman as the second part, and I Justice as the third part. And Transport from Paradise, again, for folks who haven't seen that, it's a fascinating film. And that one, I mean, there's so many layers going on in that because it's a film about a film being made in a ghetto. And the film inside of the film is a propaganda movie. And that is actually based on a real propaganda film. There's a propaganda film called Hitler Gives a Town to the Jews, which is really difficult to find. Fortunately, I was able to find a, um, a, the, a Jewish museum who would give me a copy, but across the top of it and the bottom, it's just like, this is propaganda. You know, nothing is to be believed. And I was just like, yeah, okay. I, I totally get it because it paints this whole idea of look at how great Hitler was being to these Jewish people. And that's the thing that happens in transport from paradise is you get these shots where it's like, I'm in Terrazin and everything is fine. Everything is great. Oh, it's so fucking sinister, that film. Isn't it? It's just, oh, it's amazing. But you did have, under communism, the same thing where they were making all those bloody farming films. Like, oh, hey, we're all the Czechoslovaks and we're all on the farming community and we're having a great time. And they did that under communism as well. And some of those like Czech happy people propaganda communist films are quite sinister but transport from paradise fuck that film is just and it's got that same under layer of suspicion and people reporting on each other and spying and looking everyone's everywhere you go there's somebody hiding or spying or oh it's just so good i really wish i justice would be out there in a in an english subbed version even fan i'd take fan subbed because, again, that seems to explore some of those same themes. But with all the symbolism, you really need the subtitles with these films. They're not films you can just watch and get. Even with the subtitles, you know, you're still left with questions. So There almost needs to be another track on these films that says, like, what you're looking at right here or in the background over here, just like all of those things on uh, Dr. Braun's wall. I'm just like, what exactly is that? What am I seeing right there? There's a, a, a shot near the beginning of the film where it almost looks like a city map. And I'm just like, is this the entire map of his area of Prague that he's liquidating? I mean, what, what am I looking at? And that's the thing with this movie is that, I mean, you wrote a little bit on this. I mean, this movie needs to have term papers galore written on it. There needs to be much more study of this movie and much more explanation as far as what is going on here. Because as a stupid Midwesterner sitting here watching this movie, I don't get a lot of it, but it's still a great experience. But I think it would only be enriched by knowing more of the history and more of what the symbolism is going on in this definitely needs to be analyzed by people who um you know historians who specialize in say world war ii themed films from that political period people who really get the nuance of the language i mean it's just there's so much there to just so much there. i'm surprised it hasn't had that i just think that's maybe down to the obscurity of it but you know, there are a few people have written on it, but there's there's hardly anything when you look at how much the cremator's been written about, for example. Mm, and but that's, that's still the the cremator's still. I mean, it's it's a 
it's I think you can find more stuff in the past about the cremator than this, but it's still only in the last couple of years that these films have really started to come to the fore again to get noticed, to get written about. So I'm as impatient as you guys, but I, I hope we're getting there. I hope that we're getting noticed and everyone's going, hey, these are really cool films. Fingers crossed. But I, I did want to say that the on the trying to figure out what was in the background, I'm pretty sure the decadent doctor has a Hieronymus Bosch print on his wall. Which again <laughs> comes up in the cremator. Um, there's so many when I did the commentary for the cremator I really wanted to do comparisons of the two but but I thought I can't because if I start doing that people who haven't seen the fifth horse and the fear you know it's kind of spoilers so I sort of mentioned it but uh, and transport from paradise as well there's a bit with the cat they're trying to steal at the beginning and the way he's holding the cat is the same as Copford Kingle in The Cremator. Uh, I think Hertz learned a lot from Brinich, but I'd also like to see someone do a huge paper or a book on that, please, while we're asking for stuff. You know, a trilogy Blu-ray origin, Blu-ray restoration with the lost brothel scenes, a book. <laughs> too much to ask. Soundtrack album while we're at it. Sure. Have either of you seen Zoltan Fabri's The Fifth Seal? No, no. It's a hung, it's a Hungarian film from 1976. Um, we played it at the Czech and Slovak Film Festival last year. Um, we did a bit of a combo with the Hungarian embassy because they've just done a bunch of restorations of Zoltan Fabri's films. And um, so, you know, a bit of a neighbourly kind of thing plays played them. Um, the Fifth Seal, not only the titles are similar, but there is a, quite a – a strong connection between the two and how they deal with it. Again, that's that's the not quite Nazi uh, uh, society in Fifth Seal. It's a, the, the symbols are a bit tweaked and a bit different, but it's clearly meant to be communism in Hungary. It, it's essentially a, a bit of a philosophical thought experiment where half of it is a group of men in a bar after lights out, just drinking and chatting and playing cards and it's chatting back and forth about their lives. And then the last third is them all being brought in to inform on a person um, or like kind of not quite informed, but you know, that they're being tested. That is like, which ones are you are loyal? You have to beat this man or you will be executed. Um, So it has very much that same kind of feel of, of the stripping away of the humanity and who will be, human enough to not beat this person um again like i saw this last year and it is even, probably even less known than the fifth horseman is fear and equally deserves the all the accolades and blu-rays and articles written on it because it just was incredible um almost as good as in the fifth horseman um highly recommend seeking that one out and yeah again i did 11 years difference but still that's the same problems and the same issues and the same monstrosities i need to see that now mm, definitely uh, it was it was selected as the hungarian entry for best foreign language film at the 49th academy awards but it wasn't the most popular 
foreign film. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> those, those, you mean those like third right communist metaphor, uh, philosophical thought experiment films? They're huge hits in America, aren't they? <laughs> Bigger than Black Panther. Bigger than Black Panther. <laughs> well, in some states. <clears throat> um. Well, it sounds like that is another biblical reference with the seals and the seven seal being broken, etc. I mean, I, I imagine that somebody at home is going crazy that we haven't even addressed the title of the fifth horseman is fear being a reference to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So there you go. There's your reference. And there's probably somebody going crazy that. that it's also referred to as dot, 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 and the fourth. And the fifth, yeah. <laughs> I just called it fifth horseman is fear because it just stuck in my head as that. And that's it. I feel like doing the dot, dot, dot and the and, you need to be standing slightly behind a curtain and leaning back. <laughs> with, like, evocative lighting while you say the full title. <laughs> That's only for people that can actually say it in the original check. I, I do have, while I'm asking about films you probably haven't heard of, have you guys, do you know um, the white, I, do, I can't remember if I asked about this last time or not, The White World According to Dali Boric, because I'm still waiting, it's one of my favourite Czech films about Nazis no. for the last couple of years, and it still hasn't appeared anywhere. I probably did rant. Yeah, I, uh... I just uh, awarded that a award at the Chicago Underground Film Festival last year because, yeah, that is a crazy movie. And my goodness, the end of that film just took our breaths away. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really phenomenal film that I think, while it's so very different to the film we're talking about today, it still continues that really interesting uh, engagement that Czech culture has with you know, the Nazis and their atrocities and, and their ongoing legacy and how to deal with that. And so I think, like, yeah, I think, I, I think if you love these kind of films in a new way, even you want to see something just as bold and strange and gnarly and angry as those, then check out The White World, according to Dali Boric, if it is out there. Sorry. It's yeah, it's, it's a documentary oh. from 2017 which follows a Czech neo-Nazi and it's very up close and personal and... For the most, it's being attacked because for the most part, it's it just kind of lets him depict himself and be himself. Um, it does. Though feel- he is absolutely ridiculous, him and his rap songs and stuff. Oh my god! Oh. It's kind of like if if like it's it's almost it's got a little bit of that weird Wes Andersonness to it that it just has this strange constructed feeling. But it's about a neo-Nazi who's an absolute dipshit who lives with his mother and does terrible youtube clips and is supposedly a real person and it is supposedly all real and it goes to one of the most like i i i it was like hang on get me a i need to get me a, a crowbar i need to get my jaw off the floor right now it's it's really strange impressive cinema I need to see this. This sounds yeah. incredible. Yeah, it is. It is pretty remarkable. Yeah, if people have a chance to see the White World, it, it goes. It, it's it's a long film. It's a slow paced film. Let's put it that way. But the end of it is worth it. And the end where you think it ends, it keeps going, and it just gets better from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great stuff. So check out this segue that I'm about to do. So we talked about transport from paradise, which was from Brinich, and it was written by Arnos Lustig. He also wrote Dita Saxova, and Dita Saxova is the film that we're covering next week. So as I said last week, there aren't a lot of proper trailers for the films we're showing in September, so I will just say that next week is Dita Saxova. And until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, 
Ben and Kat. So, Ben, what is the latest with you, sir? At the moment, I'm working on a top-secret project that I'm not allowed to reveal any information about. It's Let's just say that once again, I'm back at the beating heart of Australian culture. The last year I've worked on Picnic at Hanging the Rock, Rompus Domper and Wentworth, which is the prisoner of redo. And the next one, well, it's going to be a doozy. Um, other than that, not a lot going on at the moment. Uh, we've got, Here in Australia, we've got the Czech and Slovak Film Festival is gearing up again. Um, so that oh, let me just grab the dates. That will be uh, Melbourne 12th to the 26th of September and Canberra 18th to the 21st of October. And we... We do have a, I always put her name, Vera Chetlova retrospective. Yeah, and a lot of them are on prints as well. So Daisies and Fruit of Paradise, et cetera, and, and a retrospective screening of Ecstasy as along with a, a whole bunch of new films as well. So if you're in Australia or if you feel like popping over to Australia and you want to do- dose up on Czech and Slovak Film Festival, we've got plenty of options in uh, September and October. And I'll just say the website for that is Casfa, uh, uh, C A S ffa.com.au. And Kat, how is the busiest woman in England? It is England, right? I mean, some people call it the UK, even some people call it Britain. <laughs> You're doing that political thing again, Mike, aren't you? <laughs> oh, I know. This was a good podcast until it got political. You just ruined it. You know, you just ruined just it land- all your. <laughs> I thought we would change the name to the land of Brexit. That had such a good ring to it. We just abbreviated to lob. It's Little Englander. That's what it is. Little Englander. Englander. <laughs> oh dear. Your bloody palm is what you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've just we've just got over the visit from Trump. Actually, that was that was interesting. I love the person. I think it was the German newspaper who photoshopped all his all his touristy photos with the balloon instead of him. <laughs> I thought that was just so joyful. I got shouted at on Facebook for sharing that. That was great. (laughs) Busy, busy, busy. What have I just done? So I've almost like a year late finished my Daughters of Darkness book. I've got three paragraphs to write, which I'm going to do when I finish this. And then I'm going to celebrate because that's turned out to be a really intense project it's supposed to be a monograph and it basically just turned into this bizarre obsession to just get everything but i'm very proud of the book but i will be glad to finish and then my next book project is on hollywood new uh, well gothic in hollywood noir melodrama i'm really looking forward to starting that um doing lots of weird commentaries again i've just recorded one for the boston strangler which is a fucking incredible film with my love, Tony Curtis, in it. Um, and talking of Czech, Sam and I are actually recording, I can't say what it is, but we're actually recording a commentary next week for a very much-wanted Czech film on Blu-ray, which has been in the works for a couple of years. But um, I don't know, actually, the announcement might have been made by the time this announced, uh, this episode airs, so I hope so. Yeah, so all that going on, magazine going on, more podcasts. I just did an episode of House Bows with Heather Drain, who's always comes on the projection brief on Spinal Tap, which was a riot. And then Sam and I did one on Doors of Darkness on William Castle because we just did a commentary on Mr. Sardonicus. Um, yeah, so loads of really interesting, fun stuff going on. Not the Trump, not the Trump visit. That that wasn't interesting. <laughs> or fun. 
<laughs> Congratulations on reaching the end of the book. Yes, feels like oh god, it really. It, I did get two really in-depth interviews though. One with Harry Kimball, one with Danielle Wime. Oh, I've nice. analysed the film in respect to gothic, to fantasy, and decadence. So I've got Fastbinder in there. <laughs> I've got literally everything. It just turned out so crazy. Marlene Dietrich and German cinema, and just you know, it, it turned out completely differently to my very very conventional book proposal uh when i first put in it's uh, usually the best way it turns out isn't it yeah. <laughs> it just keeps growing on its own <laughs> i really hope people like it because you know it just really became just one of the most intense projects that i've worked on even though it wasn't supposed to be been rewarding but frustrating do you talk at all about uli lomel's uh adolf and marlene no, it wasn't written. That was the other thing. The challenge with it is it had to be under 35,000 words, absolute tops, because they're part of the Devil's Advocate series and they have a. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that I did was then had to be taken out because I wasn't room for it. So when I say frustrating, uh, I think there's potential for loads of other different projects have come out of that, though, because it was. You know, if I'd had twice the space, I think it would have been easier. But it was all like, oh, God, I'm going over again. What do I have to take out? Oh, it was just all like that. Uh, so I wanted to try and get a bit of everything. But there were parts I really couldn't explore as much as I wanted to. Oh, it's so heartbreaking when you get that. When I did my honours thesis, which I would like to one day turn into a book, um, I mean, my original plan was to do a comparative piece between Italian cannibal films of the 1970s and American cannibal films and compare the, diff- the, the similarities and differences between their social and political and everything and how they utilise anthrop- um, cannibalism in relation to anthropology and mythology. And I had 12,000 words. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so it very quickly just became about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and sweet oh. fuck all else. <laughs> 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 so one but as I said, I've got a book there for the red get around to it. <laughs> well I wrote my first chapter in Daughters of Darkness and it was like eleven thousand words. Like bearing in mind the book's supposed to be thirty-five top, eleven thousand words on one chapter, and I was just like, Oh fuck. <laughs> 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 oh, painful! Well, I, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to read it yet because I've been so flat out this last couple of weeks. But um, I've just got um, the Arrow release of The Witches, which um, I know you, you're pretty sure you helped out with that, didn't you? I'm not. Oh, having yeah, I did a book a essay. I loved working on that. That's oh, my other I, weird little project that's on my back burner. It's a book on Italian comedy, uh, but not as bad as the Czech cinema. But getting hold of some of the films has been a challenge, and I'm trying to learn Italian, but it's slow going. So I think that will be a few years in the making because there hasn't really been a comprehensive book on Italian comedy for, um, you know, just for English speakers that gets into the whole culture and everything. So they did ha- do have a very rich history in Italian comedy. Uh, there's an, the odd academic book. So I wanted to write it more like a guide, but it's it's frustrating when you can't find the films or you read about them and then you can't track them down. So many of them as well. Yeah, that's, that's, I've been trying to find The Witches for years. So I just jumped on that Blu-ray straight away and watched it with my girlfriend a couple of weeks ago and we loved it. It is a, oh. That is another film that... If you haven't seen the Italian The Witches, 
from the sixties, go and seek it out now and watch it because it is hands down one of the not only one of the like my new favorite films of the sixties, but one of the best anthology films I've ever seen. Oh, it's amazing! But I had to keep saying, "I yeah, I did the witches, but not the, the hammer one because." <laughs> <laughs> Or the rogue one. <laughs> we, we, my girlfriend and I would do it, make coming up with our own fantasy kind of film festival marathon kind of things, and we got we booked. She was like, "Oh, we'll definitely put the witches in," and I was like, "Yeah, we'll definitely put the witches in." And about half an hour later, really, I was talking rogue. She was talking Italian. I was like, "Let's just put them both in." <laughs> hey, Mike, oh, yeah, well, but you've been doing your own busy, busy things, haven't you, Mister? I have been. And I'm so pleased. It's well overdue. Well, well. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Hopefully we'll see more of these now. Yeah, you. that would be nice. You, you, I didn't think I was ever going to watch Exorcist 2, The Heretic, ever again, but now I have to. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, sure you'll make it a much not... <laughs> more pleasurable experience for me. <laughs> well, at least, at least I'm on the short version of it. I guess that's maybe a positive. <laughs> Same. I'm not particularly a fan. I'm not to piss on anyone's parade, but I'm not. But I will be getting the disc so I can check out your thoughts on it, Mike, because I know that you might give it another edge or another angle that might make me... We we'll see. I feel like Borman is one of those directors who he, he can be a struggle, but if you can find the right in, then you're solid, you're gold. So we look forward to hearing what your in is, Mike. Well, I mean, hopefully it's it's my first solo commentary, so be gentle, please. And I don't do nearly enough name dropping. I was listening to the commentary of Suspiria yesterday, and my God, was there a lot of name dropping. <laughs> So, Kat, make sure that you save up all that knowledge of Daughters of Darkness and we can do a podcast on it next year. Yes. I, I, so much I, stuff down to say. That. I love that film. I'm, I'm hanging out for your book. And, yeah, if you, if you want somebody on that, I'm also down for that one. So, Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thank you for everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.